Hello, Flight Instructors and NAFI members. This is John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors, and I am thrilled to welcome you back to another episode of the More Right Rudder podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. Now, I'm really happy to uh, tell you that this episode is sponsored by Sporty's Pilot Shop. Learn to fly here. Now, Sporties has been a huge supporter of NAFI over the years, and uh, of course, our members as well. And we'd like to remind you that NAFI members receive 20% off most training products from Sporties. So go ahead and log into NAFINet.org and uh, check out the discounts page and check out the uh, discount for Sporties. See if there's something there that. Uh, might be interesting to you. Now, if you're not a member or not familiar with Sporties, they have all kinds of training products, headsets, and even gifts for pilots. Uh, so it's a great thing for uh, any aviator on your list. Go to sporties.com. Now, um, today's episode is a presentation that our board member, Brian Schiff, uh, or Captain Brian Schiff, recorded a little while ago. And you recorded it about the possible turn. Now, it's kind of a, a play on words for what was formerly known as the impossible turn. I think we've all either talked with our flight instructors or um, kind of by the water cooler about what would you do if you had an engine failure on takeoff? Does it, uh, does it mean you look for a field within 30 degrees? Would you turn around? Does it depend on altitude? Does it depend on airspeed? Well, Brian has a compelling argument on, you know, what, not that he recommends, but maybe what we should be thinking about. Um, and uh, we know it's a little bit of a controversial subject, but frankly, controversy causes people to uh, to ponder new ideas, and, and new ideas are what we're all about. So, I really do hope you enjoy it, and if you know anything about Brian Schiff, he is a huge proponent of general aviation and general aviation safety. He's also a uh, captain at a major airline, and uh, the Schiff family has, has always been very involved in, uh, um, in general aviation. So it, uh, it comes from a really, really good place, and uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. Now, also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention to uh, remind you, if you could, to uh, rate the podcast, preferably five stars if you could, um, but, uh, even leave a review if you feel so inclined, uh, both of those things help us get the word out and, uh, allow us to come up a little bit easier when people start searching for new things to listen to. So that would be great. And also if you haven't found us on social media, remember NAFI CFI on Facebook. We also have a Facebook group and NAFI instructors on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, and so find us, follow us, comment, participate. We love the discussion. So anyways, um, without further ado, the possible turn with Captain Brian Schiff and hosted by good friend and Avi, Ron Timmermans. Enjoy. Tonight we're uh, pleased to have with us as our guest speaker, Mr. Brian Schiff. Brian is a captain for a major U.S. airline, over 20,000 hours, typewriter in several different commercial airlines, and he just recently celebrated his 30th anniversary with his airline. 
His, um, his roots are deeply planted in general aviation. He's flown a wide variety of aircraft, and he is a legacy of Barry Schiff, whom you also probably know and have heard of and probably read some of his articles and, and books. Ryan, himself a very accomplished aviator, holds several flight instructor ratings, and he's recognized for his enthusiasm and ability to teach in ways that simplify complex procedures and, con and concepts. He has actively instructed since uh, earning his instructor certificates in 1985. He attended San Jose State University, earned a BS in aeronautical science from Embry-Riddle, and a master's of science degree in aviation safety from the University of Central Missouri. He regularly teaches as well as flies for an airlines. He conducts <laughs> seminars about aviation safety and techniques to students and professional pilots alike, and I just learned that he also is a presenter for AOPA Rusty Pilot Seminars. Brian, welcome to our broadcast tonight. It is great to have you with us. Hi, it's great to be here. And uh, boy, after all that, I sound like I might know what I'm talking about, so give me a little bit of confidence on that. Um, well, good. It's I'm my job to pump you up. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I think you pumped me a little more than I deserve, but in any event, it's great to be here doing my first uh, live webcast. I've done many seminars, but never never over the internet like this before. Well, a new experience. I'm glad you're going to get that. Tonight's uh, topic, uh, Brian, very interesting and, and um, in many ways controversial because uh, until now or until recently, the conventional training and wisdom indicated that pilots should always land straight ahead when confronted by an engine failure that occurs shortly after after takeoff. But tonight you're going to uh, suggest a, a means to practice and perhaps execute um, the possible turn back to land on the runway from which we just departed following an engine failure. This is, some people would call this the impossible turn. And I guess this is a pretty much hotly debated topic, uh, perhaps exceeded only by the religious wars of Lena Peak versus Richard <laughs> Yes, it is a hotly debated topic, and those who regard it as impossible should probably leave it alone and not do it. Uh, it is possible under the right circumstances, and that's what I'd like to kick off and discuss tonight uh, as far as how to know when you should do it, when it's probably less hazardous to do so than to go straight, and to discuss the, the considerations involved in doing so. And having spoken with you a bit before the, you began the presentation, I understand that you have uh, completed uh, quite a bit of research and done some test flying on your own to uh, uh, proof these concepts. Uh, and uh, did you want to mention that? Well, 37 years ago when I started flying, my father taught me how to do the maneuver and how to return back to the airport safely. Of course, flying out of Santa Monica Airport, that's one of those airports where you just might want to do that. That's where I learned to fly. Uh, so I, I took a lot of this for granted, but what I didn't know is that before I ever started learning to fly, in fact, before I was born, he had uh, two engine failures after takeoff uh, and, and as a knee-jerk reaction, returned to the runway, and he did so safely. And he was, he was heavily chastised for that and criticized because of the rule of the day of going straight ahead. And because of that criticism that he received, he has done over 40 years of research in, in looking into this and talking about that. On those coattails, I have done some test flying. I've done some research and, and trying to go along with learning what, what he has studied over the last 40 years on this topic. Uh, so I'd like to say that I have some credibility in the things that I'm going to talk about tonight. However, I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts or talk about formulas and mathematics and, and things like that that are involved, but a lot of those are in the background 
and, and, and were used in the research of, of determining this, including some test flying. And then toward the end of, the, of this presentation, I'm going to show you uh, a demonstration flight where we actually did a turn back. Very good. Well, Brian, with that uh, introduction, along with 2,000 of your closest friends watching us tonight, I'm very excited about hearing your presentation, so please take it away. All right, great. Thank you. Um, the concept of an engine failure shortly after takeoff, it ranks up there with things as bad as a mid-air collision or a, an in-flight fire. And the, the concept of thinking about that, the prospect of, of that happening, is, it's really daunting. And what we're talking about is a very narrow window of time where you really have no choice uh, after takeoff. And, and you really need to be ready for that. If, there, if you're taking off somewhere where there's nowhere to go, nowhere to put down, in the event your engine fails in that very narrow window of time when it's most critical, then you need to have that forethought ahead of time. The, like I said, this happened twice to my father. He was criticized heavily, even though he made it back both times. Uh, and he was criticized because the advice of the day and the advice up until recently has always been just go straight ahead. If you lose an engine, ask any student, if you lose an engine after takeoff, immediately after takeoff, what are you going to do? Go straight ahead. That's the knee-jerk answer. Uh, one answer doesn't quite always fit every scenario. I think whenever somebody says the words always or never, they're usually wrong. So we're going to talk about some exceptions again, to this advice of the day of always going straight ahead. Um, the convention was go straight ahead. Go somewhere that's in your windshield, maybe 30 degrees. If you can see it in your windshield, go there. And that's usually true. But like I said, there are exceptions to every rule. You don't always say always. You don't say never. Uh, turning around is very risky, and it has led to stalls and spins, and there have been many accidents because of it. Many pilots have turned around without having given it any thought as to what their plan is or, or preparing for what it would be like to do so if they had to make the turn back to the airport. There's a natural tendency to go back to the airport, to go back to where you came from. So it's instinctive to turn. And, and it's very much wishful thinking that if your engine fails, if I turn back, I'm going to make it back to the airport. Um, there are times when going straight ahead is extremely dangerous. You just have nowhere to go. Uh, nothing but schools and houses and maybe terrain or whatever. And returning to the airport may be your only option because of what lies ahead. The problem is returning to the airport often has resulted in tragedy. And each tragedy, every time someone tries to turn back to the airport after an engine failure and fails by crashing, uh, we tend to convince ourselves that that's the wrong thing to do. And, and it seems to happen a lot. Pilots are doing it anyway because it's instinctive. So why not teach them how to do it or when to do it, when it's appropriate? When, when dad had his engine failure, again, he was very, the two of them, he was strongly criticized after turning back. But like I, we discussed earlier, this led him to seriously research the subject. And what he discovered is through thorough research is that many pilots have made the turn back and returned safely to the airport following an engine failure shortly after takeoff. We don't hear about them because they didn't bend any metal and nobody got hurt and they did not become statistics. So we're only looking at the statistics of those accidents that, or those engine failures that resulted in accidents. When they resulted in accidents, witnesses have reported that 
when they saw the aircraft, it stalled and spun very quickly. It developed quickly, and there was no time for the pilot to do any kind of recovery. It's just in very incipient phase of a spin and a stall spin. And these pilots who did this usually turned without any kind of preparation or forethought as to how they were going to accomplish it if it was needed. Um, again, the tendency is to return to a safe place. We all want to get back to the safe place we were. When something bad happens, we tend to want to undo what, just, what we just did and get back to where we were. This is proven in numerous aircraft airline uh, evacuations. After an emergency landing, you'll see airline passengers tend to have historically returned to the entry door in which they entered the airplane instead of the nearest emergency exit, despite the fact that crew members are yelling, come this way, come this way, and, and they just all tend to want to go back out the front door, even the people in the back. The, uh, the FAA has even come out and said that the fatal turn back, when pilots do this, they're making this decision impulsively and with inadequate planning, and this is true, and that's the most dangerous way to, to do this, is, is to make a turn back impulsively with no planning. So because of all the unsuccessful uh, turn backs, the ones that ended in accidents, uh, naysayers dubbed the maneuver the impossible turn. It became, uh, it got the nickname, and, and that nickname is a, a disservice to what could possibly be a, a very good tool to have in your kit bag to get back to the airport to save your life. It might be the safest uh, or least hazardous uh, avenue to take. But with that negative connotation of calling it the impossible turn, then people might be staying away from an idea that, like I said, could be something that would really help. Again, these naysayers, they cite all the accidents. Uh, they don't know how many did it successfully. We don't know. We can't track that. It's likely that a majority of the pilots who turned back unsuccessfully and crashed hadn't the benefit of training they needed to do it safely. And it's instinctive, again, wishful thinking that you can get back to the airport. The airport's safe. Trees and houses and terrain is, are not safe. We want to go back to an airport with the runway, which isn't a bad thinking. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a flat area generally. You have more area around the airport that's flat, but importantly, in addition to that, is that if you think you're going to crash land, you know that the rescue crews can get to you quicker if you're on the airport as well. The... FAA has put out an advisory circular 6183J last fall, uh, and that advisory circular is targeted toward flight instructor refresher course courses and uh, flight instructors, of course. And in the appendix, it actually discusses the return to the field after an engine failure shortly after takeoff and says that flight instructor refresher clinics should have instructors teach how to determine, how to teach their students how to quickly determine whether or not a turn back will have a successful outcome. While that's great, now the FAA is on board with this, and it actually really vindicated a lot of the research and thinking that my father had. So for the first time in 40-something years, he feels vindicated because of this FAA for the first time saying, yeah, you know, maybe we should take a look at this. But there needs to be some guidance, and there needs to be some direction given on that. And that's where I think we're going to kick off with what we're talking about tonight. So regarding that, first thing I'd like to discuss is the factors involved with returning to the airport. And then I'll discuss how to determine when it's an option. If it's not an option, you don't want to do it. 
And I'm not selling the turn back. I'm not trying to say this is what everybody should do because most of the time it's you're exposing yourself to unnecessary risk. If I take off at an airport with nothing but fields in front of me, I'm not even entertaining the thought of turning back. I'm going to take one of these fields. I'd rather have the time and, and, and uh, controllability of the airplane and go straight ahead just like we've been taught. And most of the time, that's what we're going to get. So none of what we're going to discuss is intended to encourage anyone to turn back to the airport following an engine failure, especially low-time pilots. Uh, they should not attempt the turn back. Statistics have shown that the probability of success with low-time pilots is directly proportional to how much experience you have and recent experience as well. It's really for the proficient pilot and someone who's practiced it and had, it, had training in it. Uh, there are no hard, fast rules on how to turn back. The factors are too numerous to mention all of them tonight. I'm going to hit the tip of the iceberg on some of the big ones but each of the topics we talk about could be delved into deeply. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, this, and you should mention that, there, there is more to every, every one of these little considerations that we're going to bring up. And these considerations include wind direction, wind speed, what kind of turn to make, how far from the airport can I be to do this? Am I too close or too far? Uh, the important one is how much altitude do I need to make this turn? And there have been instructors teaching it, some of them doing a really good job. Others, maybe a, their intent is to do a good job, but they're giving some misinformation. Uh, and in the wind, for example, if you have a really strong headwind, should you attempt to turn back? This is just an example of one of the many considerations. I say no, if you have a strong headwind, for example, you want, to, you want to take advantage of that. If you're going to crash land straight ahead, then if, if, I'm ha if I have a stall speed of 50 knots, for example, and a 20-knot headwind, well, then I'm going to crash land at about 30 knots. Or do I want to turn around and have a 20-knot tailwind? My stall speed of 50 plus that 20 is 70 knots. Think of yourself as being in a car. If you're going to crash a car, would you rather crash at 70 miles an hour or 30 miles an hour? The energy, in, because of that difference in speed, is, is, is dramatic. The survivability skyrockets if you can touch down slowly. And in addition to that, with a really strong headwind, you turn around, now you're making this downwind turn, and you're going to have a pretty good tailwind. You might overshoot the airport, not make it back anyway, because you'll pass it. So because of the danger in returning to the airport, a turn back should only be perform when it would be more hazardous not to. And you may hear me say that a few times tonight, that the turn back to the airport should only be made when it's more hazardous not to. And, and we'll talk about some of those things. Flight instructors, you're going to teach students how to do this maneuver or how to practice it in their airplane. You should become thoroughly familiar with the specific airplane you're going to fly, its handling characteristics and, and all, the, all the things that are involved in this aspect of turning back before you give instruction in that airplane on uh, on turnbacks. Brian? Yeah. Brian, if I may, I uh, just want to make sure I understood. You said uh, when it would be more hazardous not to. I guess you're talking about if, uh, if I look out the windshield after an engine failure and I see uh, formidable terrain or a solid residential area that just makes it impossible to make a safe landing there, then that would be more hazardous than to attempt to turn back if I was experienced and, uh, and, and practiced it. 
Absolutely. That is, that is exactly what I'm talking about. If it's more hazardous because of terrain or obstacles. Uh, but you said, look out the window and my engine fails. I would like to back that up. I think a student or any pilot should have that ahead of time to know if it's too hazardous. If I'm flying out of an airport where there is nowhere to go, we have all kinds of resources. We can look at Google Maps. We can look at uh, ForeFlight now has a great feature for looking around the airport. This should be done ahead of time to determine if it's hazardous or not. And then if it is more hazardous and we are going to employ the possibility of turning back to the airport, then we're going to do it a certain way. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, sure, sure. The, the engine failure is usually the pilot's fault. Not always, but a lot of times it is. So the best thing to do is, is announce a prevention here and do everything that we can do to avoid the engine failure after takeoff in the first place. That's the first thing. And I think that it would be a shame not to mention all the things that we can do to avoid that engine failure. I would do it on every takeoff. I would be especially cautious if I'm departing an airport where, let's say it is more hazardous to go straight because of all the terrain that's there. The first thing is pilot error. I've seen pilots not do a pre-flight. That's just, that's just a crime. That's an accident waiting to happen, and sometimes it does. Uh, another thing is fuel mismanagement. Manage our fuel. Uh, I've seen pilots not check the fuel. I've seen We've all seen these things. The pilots that say, well, who hasn't come back from a flight uh, or are about to go on a flight and the, the pilot who brings the airplane in and their instructor said, well, we just flew in the pattern for an hour, so it should be good on fuel. No, check the fuel. Always check the fuel. I don't care what the pilot bringing it in says. I don't know that his fuel cap was on and he wasn't leaking fuel that whole time in the pattern. Uh, another example of that is not enough well, not enough fuel, but not only that, but selecting the, the fullest tank just prior to takeoff. Show of hands, who switches the tank right before takeoff? Well, there's no one here in my room, I can't see, but if anybody's raising your hand, maybe you should reconsider that. Um, I teach and I practice that I select the fullest tank I'm going to take off on before I start the engine. I taxi out, run up, take off on that tank. I've, it's proven itself over that entire time. And the first time I switch tanks after that is when I'm at a safe altitude and cruise and I've spotted out a place to go in case this doesn't go right. Switching to a, another tank right before, immediately before takeoff uh, is to put another half of your fuel system in test mode right before takeoff. So that's just, just not a good idea. So there are techniques like that. Um, another thing that is, I think, one of the most common denominators in accidents that I've seen is being in a hurry. I often will see pilots rush to comply. Ever hear the tower say, uh, yeah, clear for takeoff without delay, got a mile, mile traffic on a mile final. I say unable every time. I'm never in a hurry. In fact, anybody who's been a student of mine or has flown with me at the airline knows that I brief ahead of time, hey, we're gonna operate at one of two speeds, slow or screw up and you pick which speed you want to operate at. You can do things slowly, or you can do things quickly, and nine out of 10 times you're gonna screw up. It's just not worth taking that risk. When you're slow and deliberate, sometimes it's painful. It seems like it's painfully slow, but you'll find that when you don't have to do something over again, or worse, that going slow is better in the first place. So I don't rush to comply, and I advocate that nobody rush to comply. When you find yourself doing that, you're about to set yourself up for things that can go wrong. 
And then lastly, just not accomplishing a checklist. I, I give flight reviews and I've seen somebody, even on a flight review, go through the whole thing without doing a checklist. And then we go back and we talk about it. Uh, and, and, and we're going to change that habit. So not doing a checklist is, is asking for it as well. So if you can adhere to all the policies, procedures, FARs, and take your time, you might be able to eliminate the odds of having that engine failure in the first place. So now that we've gotten everything that we have control of out of the way, we look at every takeoff has its own fingerprint and requires its own plan. At the airline, we evaluate everything we can about every specific takeoff. We look at the airport, the runway, the wind, how heavy are we, the density altitude, what are the traffic conflicts, what's the terrain like around that airport, everything that we consider and we devise a plan with that. And there's nothing wrong with doing that in general aviation as well. Let's take a look at this takeoff. And specifically for what we're talking about tonight, I want to look at is there somewhere to go if we lose an engine? How much runway are we going to need? How much runway do we have? So on and so forth. So every takeoff requires its own kind of planning and determining. And like I said, for tonight, we're going to discuss, is this a runway? And let's assume that for the sake of tonight, that we're talking about runways where there is no option after takeoff. There's nowhere to go straight ahead. And there may be a short period of time from liftoff to when you reach that altitude that you know you can make it back where you're just going to have to do your best. So let's look at uh, some considerations as far as making this turn back. One of them is the wind. And if you are to take off with a crosswind, some of the factors to consider, if you had a crosswind, which way would you turn? And I think looking at this diagram, it's, it's obvious that you want to turn into the wind. It keeps you closer to the airport. It has a smaller turn radius. And you can see if you turn downwind, it's going to take you farther away from the airport. And that's going to give you a much longer ground track and a much lo uh, and a longer period of time during which you'll be losing altitude. So I think this is obvious. Into the wind gives you the tighter radius. So with a crosswind, you want to turn into the wind. As far as uh, bank angle, what bank angle do we want versus our altitude loss? Well, interestingly, I mean, what we're talking is we want to do a shallow bank or a steep bank. Interestingly, is, is it, during a steep bank turn of the same distance of turning, let's say 180 degrees, you will lose less altitude with a steep bank than you will with a shallow bank. Even though your rate of descent is greater, you're spending a lot less time in that turn losing altitude when you do a steep bank. For example, in a 172, if we make a 180 degree turn, at a 30 degree bank, we lose 380 feet. If we bank at 75 degrees, we only lose 210 feet. That saves you 170 feet right there. However, I don't recommend a 75 degree bank because the stall speed increases an unacceptable and dramatic 97%. So at a 75 degree bank, your stall speed doubles practically. Not a good idea. So somewhere in between those two, and you don't want to turn too steeply because of the, 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 the potential for a stall and the higher stall speed and a shallow bank would take you too far from the airport. While it's really safe and comfortable, you might have too large a turn radius and get too far from the airport when turning around. So too shallow is also bad. A good compromise 
if you look at all the, the stall speeds and when it really starts dramatically going up, a good compromise, everything considered, is a 45 degree bank angle. Private pilots do it for their check ride, so private and above have all become accustomed to a 45 degree steep turn. And it only produces a 19% increase in stall speed, which is acceptable. For example, if your stall speed is 50 knots, you're going to, in a 45 degree bank, it'll be 60 knots. So that's more acceptable and it gives you a pretty, it's good compromise for a tight turn and stall speed. When you look at the bank angle versus the turn radius, you can see that obviously a sharper, a steeper bank angle gives you the tighter turn radius in addition to turning into the wind. So the 45 degree bank angle that I'm recommending gives you a reasonably rapid turn rate. So you're not spending so much time descending during that turn and it gives you a short turn radius, short turn radius. It's, it's a good compromise. You don't really want to make a shallow bank, even though it feels comfortable, it'll just take you too far from the airport. In all cases, turns should be coordinated. Step on the ball and keep the turn coordinated. If you don't skid and you keep that ball centered, you're not going to be suspect. You're not going to get a, have a stall spin accident. Slipping, some people want to slip to get down. It's counterproductive and only slip to get down if you need to, but decide that later. Once you're getting pointed toward the runway, uh, use the slip to get down if necessary. And while skidding increases or reduces the turn radius, because some people have said, hey, I can really crank it around if I skid the turn around. It increases your turn rate, keeps you closer to the airport. Well, a spin does the same thing, but you wouldn't want to spin at that point, would you? And those are the characteristics of a spin. So don't skid. Uh, just pretty much assume that if you skid the aircraft at that point to get around, you'll spin. So keep it coordinated. And by the way, when practicing this maneuver, you'll find when you do it, I found when I did it, that the pitch and roll change required to enter the bank and a, a spiral and glide, it does induce an unexpectedly large slip. It took more rudder than I had expected. So this is another reason to go practice this at altitude so you can see exactly what it takes. It's a large pitch change and then banking, and it takes a little bit more rudder than I had expected it to take. So what airspeed? Do we want to do this maneuver at? Obviously, I think best glide is the best compromise. Uh, it's going to stretch your ground track, get the most altitude for the ground track. Uh, I recommend best glide. The slower, the better, because it reduces the amount of altitude loss per degree of turn. Now, there have been studies that have said if you go a little bit slower than that, you can actually save some, some altitude and you won't lose as much altitude per degree of turn if you're like 5% above the stall speed. Um, I'm not happy with that. I think that's just getting a little bit too close to the edge and, and not worth the risk involved in getting that close to the stall while we're doing an unexpected maneuver uh, in an emergency situation. What you will experience though, and this was a little bit of a wake up for me the more I practiced it, that you will get an intermittent stall warning horn. The stall warning horn is going to be going intermittently and it's set to activate several knots above stall. So it doesn't mean you're stalling. It just means you're getting close to the stall, which is actually where you want to be. So an intermittent stall warning means you're, you're controlling your airspeed and getting it right about where your angle of attack, right where you want it to be. A steady state stall warning, uh, that would mean that you're getting close to a stall and you don't know exactly how close to it you are. You may be 
closer than you think. But if it's intermittent, you're not quite as, uh, as close to the stall. But do expect that in the maneuver. And by the way, if you're flying an aircraft with a constant speed propeller, I recommend pulling the prop back all the way to low RPM. And that reduces a significant amount of drag and will help your, your glide as well. And so again, if you get the stall warning, please respect it. If you hear it, relax the back pressure on the control wheel to silence it. I've heard instructors say, push. If you hear the stall warning, you wanna push. When you're doing this maneuver, you're holding a significant amount of back pressure to hold a 45 degree bank at best glide speed. And you may hear the stall warning. I can guarantee you there's no pushing needed. You just relax some back pressure, get the nose down a little bit and, and get the stall warning to be intermittent and not steady. So we'll discuss the takeoff and we'll discuss different phases of, let's say you have an engine failure at different phases during this takeoff. The first thing, you need to be prepared to abort a takeoff. If you have a partial power failure, you need to abort the takeoff. And pilots typically are not, and, and I'm seeing this from numerous flight reviews that I give, and I learned this from my flight instructor whose coattails I've been riding for a number of years, that students are prone to go. And every time my instructor, my father, gives me a check ride, he gives me a reason to abort the takeoff, and I'm used to it, I'm accustomed to it, and basically he's taught me and instilled the philosophy that I'm looking for a reason not to go. But sometimes nothing happens, so I wind up going, and I can't find a reason not to go. Students need to be just as prepared to stop. Pilots should be ready to stop as they are to go. Uh, know the normals uh, of your aircraft. Do static run-ups so that you know, well, how much power should I get? If I have a fixed pitch propeller, a static run-up, I'll get 22, 2300 RPM. Know that if you apply full power early on in the takeoff roll and you only get 1900 RPM, that's a reason not to go. You know what the normal is. And, and knowing something that's out of the ordinary uh, is just as important a reason to stop as something going wrong during the roll. Uh, I also teach my students to know at what point down the runway they're going to be at a certain speed. And this varies with wind and it varies with density altitude and I can see all the, the, the comments coming. But know in general, at what point down the runway do I want to be at 40 knots? And, and know the regulars. And if you're not accelerating like you anticipate you should, don't go. Your engine might be giving you a heads up that something's about to go wrong. So be as ready to stop as you are to go at this phase. If you have an engine failure immediately after liftoff, I think what you're going to do is obvious. You don't really have a choice and you're looking at probably looking at some runway ahead of you. But if you're land if you're departing an airport where straight ahead landing would be most problematic, you need to plan ahead. Uh, like I said, you need to determine what's your climb speed going to be, for example. What how am I going to climb out on this runway? And whenever you're doing so V, a lot of pilots will climb at VY or VX as their initial climb speed. VY is too shallow. It's going to take you too far from the airport before you're high enough to turn around. Uh, VX is, if you plan to take off with VX, this is, this is just a, a Brianism that if you, take, if you plan to take off with VX, you've probably got a bad plan. VX, to, in my mind, is an emergency maneuver. I've got obstacles. I need to clear them. It's, this is the speed that I know will give me the most altitude per unit distance and, and give me the best shot at clearing an obstacle. 
that's something that is a reactionary thing, not a planning thing. And if I'm planning to take off and I have to use VX to clear something, I probably shouldn't be taking off there. Now, some people will argue this, and that's fine. Everybody has a different comfort level. But regarding departing an airport where you have nowhere to go after takeoff, if you plan and climb at VX, if you lose an engine, that is a dramatic pitch change. So much so that you're going to get a pretty good rate of descent and, 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 root, and waste a lot of your altitude that you really need for that anyway. Although it does keep you closer to the airport, I've seen instructors recommend Climate VX, it'll keep you closer, get you higher. But if your engine does fail, and that's the whole plan here, if your engine fails in that scenario, uh, you're very close to a stall, it requires immediate reaction, and it's a dramatic pitch change. So my suggestion, a personal suggestion, is to compromise. Fly at a speed halfway between VX and VY. It gets you higher faster, it gets you uh, it's a better pitch attitude if you're going to have an engine failure. So again, my recommendation, climb at a compromised speed halfway between VX and VY. And Brian? Yeah. Brian, uh, how about with retractable gear airplane? Is it your preference to uh, pull up the gear fairly soon after the uh, rotation and takeoff or when you're past the end of the runway, usable runway? Or what is what is your preference on this? Well, my preference is is the old tried and true adage that if, if you have runway ahead of you to land on, leave the gear down uh, because you may need it. Once the, the usable runway is beneath you and, and gone and you have no longer have enough runway, retract the gear. I stick with that one. Okay, so rotate, um, accelerate to a speed somewhere between VX and VY. Uh, pull up the gear when there's no more usable runway, and that would be your yeah. suggestion. Yeah, and, and if you're at one of these airports where this is an issue, we're going straight as hazardous, uh, don't be in a rush to pull the power back either. I see some people right at one or 200 feet pull back to 25 square or whatever the climb power is if they have a, uh, uh, an adjustable uh, pitch propeller. And why do that? You have longer. The, air, the aircraft can take it. Get, use your full five minutes of full takeoff power. Get some altitude and don't make power changes. For one thing, uh, engine failures tend to happen when the power change is made. And for another thing, the airplane can handle it. So get as much altitude as you can uh, before getting too far away from the airport. So if you're unable to stop and land, and you're past the end of the runway and you've got nowhere to go, you're going to crash land. You've just got to do the best you can. Uh, go straight ahead no matter what. You're not going to make a turnaround. You might make gentle turns to try and maintain clearance from obstacles and, and maintain control of the airplane. So at this point, don't hit anything hit the softest thing you can hit, try to crash land under control and at the slowest speed possible. If you're almost high enough to turn back, but not quite high enough to turn back, it's tempting to turn back, but you need to have the discipline that you're not there yet, you do not turn back, you can make partial turns to find a softer crash landing site. Uh, if you're going to have to land in a, an area that's full of trees, we've heard you want to put the wings, the fuselage between two trees, you know, it's okay to break off the wings. Think of the, don't try to preserve the airplane, preserve the fuselage if you can, put the fuselage between two obstacles uh, and shear the wings off if you have to. So this is, this is a, a whole nother topic regarding the best way to survive a crash and, and, and that's not what I want to get deep into. But you're almost high enough to turn back, don't be tempted to do it. We have a cutoff point and we're going to use that. Uh, but you do have more options. The airport just isn't one of them at this point. So you may not know if you're high enough. 
the fact is that we just don't know. So uh, at this point, we're not going to make a turn back until we do know for sure. If you are high enough to turn back, and, and we're going to get to this, uh, do you turn back immediately or try restarting the engines? The engine, I'm sorry. This, we're talking about a single engine airplane. Who tries to restart? Would you try to restart it at this point? I don't think so. I wouldn't waste the time doing that. You want to get turning. The, the first thing you want to do is point this thing back to the airport. You've decided this is an airport where it's more hazardous not to turn back. So you've done all your pre-calculations, you've planned it, you're ready for it, you're proficient at the turn back, and you've decided that X altitude is my, my marker. I've cleared that altitude, start the turn right away. Uh, trying to restart the engine, waste time and altitude that might be needed for turning back for this emergency procedure. And besides, if everything is as it should have been before takeoff, there's probably nothing you can do to restart the engine at this point anyway, uh, with the exception of turning on a fuel pump, which takes very little time. So with that, let's talk about the turn back maneuver. What is it? Is a, it, It's a turn back toward the airport to return to the landing surface of either the runway we departed from or a parallel taxiway or one of the fields in between them, maybe a flat area. But first, you need to know the altitude, how much altitude is required to make this maneuver and to do it safely. And you need to know how to do it in the airplane you fly. And there are so many variables. And some of the rules of thumbs that I'm going to give you will address some of the variables. This is to, to be determined at a safe altitude. And when you're doing it up at altitude and practicing this maneuver, the ground will look different. It's moving slower. You won't see the effects of the wind, and it's also going to be different at sea level than it is up in the mountains, so density altitude is going to be different. But you want to do this and practice it where you normally fly. So when we do the maneuver, when we want to determine our minimum turn back altitude, are we going to make a 180? We're just going to simply turn back 180 degrees? No. Uh, you're not going to turn back just 180 degrees. That will leave you at a, a, a beam the final approach course and uh, uh, away from the, the runway. 180-degree turn won't work. I've seen a lot of instructors say, well, okay, let's go up and practice the, the turn back, and we're going to do see how much altitude it takes to lose 180 degrees of turn. And 180 is not enough. It doesn't get you back to the runway. Like I said, it just gets you offset of your, your final approach course. There's more turning and more flying required. So if you just have the altitude to make the 180, well, you're still not quite back at the runway. Uh, you have to do a 360 degree turn. This is my, my, my rule for this, is you want to go up at altitude and do a 360 degree turn and see how much altitude you lose in a 360 degree gliding turn. Uh, the next slide. We have to make a turn a 180. We have to turn a little bit more to be pointed toward the airport. Then we have to turn a little bit more to get on final. There's also a straight leg. I found that we, you know, we used to teach 270. I used to teach 270. And when I went up and did some of this flight planning and tracking, it didn't work. We, we wound up to a point where we turned final adjacent to the runway. So learning how much altitude your aircraft loses in 270 degrees wasn't enough either. So it's 360 because if you add up all the turning, it really comes up to about 360 degrees. The ground track approximates the distance that you need to travel 
to get back to the runway, not just turn around, but to get back to your departure runway. So to do the maneuver, when you get up to a safe altitude, here's what you want to do to determine how much altitude your aircraft loses in a 360 degree turn. First start out by establishing a normal climb at full power. Upon reaching a cardinal altitude, say two or 3,000 feet, something easy to remember, retard the, the throttle fully, simulating an engine failure. Wait five seconds, and this is, the FAA says the normal reaction time is four seconds, but just to add, for added concern, to be conservative, a little bit more conservative than what the FAA says and that your reaction time may vary and for other factors. Wait five seconds. Just hold your attitude just like you're shocked that the engine just quit. You're trying to figure out what happened and get back caught up with the airplane. So wait five seconds to simulate the reaction time and then simultaneously pitch for best glide and roll into a 45-degree bank. Roll out of the turn at 360 degrees, roll out of the turn and arrest the sink with a simulated flare and note how much altitude you lost. In a case of a Cessna 172 SP, the altitude lost during such a maneuver is about 500 feet. And I found it to be 500 feet with other pilot, other people in the airplane. When it was just me, it was about 400 feet. So it's, it varies with the weight of the airplane. So I know it ranges between four and 500 feet. This altitude lost during the power out, the five second delay, and the 360 degree turn is called the observed altitude loss. And I'm gonna to refer to it as the observed altitude loss. It's what we observed in our 360 degree turn. Add 50% as a buffer for other factors. All the other factors that everybody in uh, Cyberland is arguing with me right now in, their, in, their, in front of their computers, this 50%, for the wife and kids, for the spouse, for whatever, for imperfect technique, and all the reasons that you're arguing with, this adds a buffer for technique. And so if, for example, the maneuver requires 500 foot observed altitude loss, we're gonna add 250 feet and make a total of 750 feet. And this is called the turn back height. This is the height above the ground we must be before we ever think about turning back to the runway. It's the vertical distance required to return to the runway following an engine failure. So to determine the minimum altitude needed, we just simply add the airport elevation to our turnback height, and that equals our turnback altitude. So we need 750 feet, we add field elevation, that's our turnback altitude. That's what we're gonna look for on the altimeter. Um, I've created a couple uh, worksheets just to make it easy and, and to understand and look at, but for the altitude loss worksheet, to figure your turnback height, do this at a safe altitude. Note your cardinal altitude, say it's 3,000 feet. At the end of the maneuver, you look at your altitude after you zero the VSI and simulate a flare, and let's say that's 2,400 feet, so the difference between that is 600 feet, and that's your observed altitude loss, 600 feet to make the 360. Add 50% of 600, which is 300, and you get a turn back height of 900 feet. So in this case, with this aircraft, 900 feet is our turn back height, how high above the ground we must be before we ever entertain the idea of turning back. Uh, under no circumstance should you ever turn back if you have not reached that altitude. Another and again, if I, may, if I may emphasize, 
the, the data that you're presenting now is what you observed using a Cessna 172, uh, sometimes with a passenger, but mostly by yourself. Uh, th your results may vary if you're in a different airplane. If you're in a heavier airplane, it may take more altitude for the actual turn back. If you're in a light sport airplane, perhaps less altitude than that. Is that correct? Absolutely. Your results will vary and your technique may vary. That's why you need to do this yourself. It's for every pilot and airplane and there's so many considerations. The 50% the buffer accounts for some of them, but you need to have a starting point. You need to understand what's the performance of my airplane going to be. Uh, so yeah, it's gonna vary for, and then the numbers I made up with the six, the 600 even number was a number I made up. What I did find in the 172 when I'm flying it solo, 400 feet it was a very close number and I was able to do it consistently. In fact, on that note, when you practice this maneuver several times, you'll notice that you'll get better at doing it with each time. I'm the first time you might lose 600, the second time you'll lose 500, then you'll lose 400 because you're, no, you're getting more coordinated, you're learning what it feels like, you're getting the training that you actually need to have in your hip pocket before you ever try this down close to the ground in an emergency situation. Exactly. And Brian, uh, one of our guests uh, wrote in, um, how critical is it uh, that you get to best glide speed on this turn back maneuver, the possible turn? How soon must you get to the uh, best, yeah, best glide speed to, to be safe and to uh, maximize performance in this turn? I think it's more critical you get the nose down to avoid the stall right away. You don't want to get the stall. If, if you're really marginal, and that's another reason that this 50% this buffer helps out is, is for technique and not getting this to, to best glide speed right away or overshooting it. Most of the time when you first try this, you're going to find you overshoot that and you're going to get really slow while you're waiting the five seconds. Don't let it stall. But then you're going to lower the nose and you're going to find that when you lower the nose to get your speed back, you lowered it too much and you're going to be at 85, 90 knots. That's wasting valuable airspeed. I think it's important to, to learn the amount of pitch change so that you don't overshoot it. And if you get yourself up to 80, 90 knots, you are wasting valuable altitude. Luckily, the buffer is in here to help you uh, with that overshoot, but get back to glide speed. So I wouldn't say it's so important that you should fly like a panic mode with, with very jerky and aggressive movements, but be deliberate, get right to it. And Rod Machado gave good advice when he talked about this a year ago and get the uh, angle of incidence of the wing, look out your window and make it flat on the horizon. Problem is you're turning at this point. So you really have a hard time doing that. But when you yeah. roll out, basically a level flight attitude, if you've practiced gliding, you'll see that that's about what you want. And what you're gonna wind up doing in the 45 degree turn recovering your speed is getting the nose too low and going too fast. That's why it really should be practiced several times. Very good. And, and Brian, we have a, a number of questions that are coming in while you're making the presentation. I'm probably not gonna interject any more questions for a while, I'll let you continue on and get through this whole presentation. So uh, continue on, please. Okay, and that's that's good. I'm glad there are questions and, and I may address them shortly in a slide or two. And if I don't, we'll look at them at the end. Um, the, the next thing that I wanted to emphasize is that the runway can't be too short. A long runway makes it much more manageable to get back to, uh, which is obvious. Too, what's too short and, and what, how far away can, from the airport can I be? Well, a good rule of thumb, and this was worked out with a lot of mathematics, and, and I actually backed it up with some test flying, utilizing the altitude and 
uh, position of uh, a grab of my stratus, and I'll show some images of that later, that the bottom line is you want to clear the end of the runway, the departure end of the runway with two-thirds of your observed altitude loss. So for example, if you lose 600 feet in a 360-degree turn, you want to be two-thirds of that 600 or 400 feet over the end of the runway, or you're not going to make it back. And what I mean by that is, for example, if let's say you cross over the departure end of the runway at one foot, and you've got such a shallow climb because of density, altitude, or whatever, that a mile later you're at two feet, and another mile you're at three feet. Now this is an extreme, but you can obviously see that too shallow an angle or too short a runway, uh, you're going to be too far from the airport by the time you reach your turn back altitude. So a rule of thumb is to be two-thirds of that observed altitude loss crossing over the departure end uh, so that you're not too far from the runway. So when your takeoff planning includes one of these hazardous airports where the potential for a turn back is, is in play because that's the only move you have if you lose an engine. Don't do an intersection departure. You're robbing yourself of the potential of being two-thirds of your observed altitude height right over the end of the runway. So in that kind of scenario, I'm against intersection departures. And use the longest runway you, you can. So there are two altitudes you need to know before you take off in such a situation where you are planning the possibility of a turn back. If you lose your engine, the most hazardous would be to go forward and less hazardous to come back. On that takeoff, you need to know two altitudes. You need to know which altitude you're gonna be over the end of the runway and the altitude you need to reach to execute the turn back maneuver. And I've also got in the downloaded worksheet, I've got uh, uh, a chart for that that you can fill out as well. It's not complicated. So let's say your observed altitude is lost is 600 feet to keep the math easy. Uh, Two-thirds of that is 400. Add your field elevation to that. For example, you're at a field that's 620 feet. Uh, 1,020 feet on the altimeter is what you want to see over the end of the runway. And if you haven't done this, if you haven't reached or accomplished this, don't turn around. The other altitude you need to know is, is the turnback maneuver altitude, the turnback height, or the turnback altitude. So you take your turnback height of 900 feet, which includes the 50% safety margin. Add your field elevation of 620 to that, to get a total of 1,520 feet. So the two numbers you need before you ever pour the coals on for this takeoff is I gotta clear the end of the runway by 1,020 and I'm not turning until I get to 1,520. So with that, I'll show you a video of a simulation that I did at an airport that's at sea level and it has a 2,700 foot strip. So here goes the video. We're taking off. You'll notice that I have the altimeter set for absolute altitude zero uh, at, at, on ground level. So it's reading zero on the ground. In this case, the 750 feet was my turn back height, and in this case, turn back altitude. So 500 feet was my observed altitude loss. I added 50% for 750 to get a turn back altitude of 750 feet. So I'm climbing out, and this is kind of what the practice maneuver will look like at altitude as well. And when I get to 750 feet, I'm going to pull the power back to idle and simulate an engine failure. I'm going to wait five seconds and kind of hold my pitch and respect the stall. At the end of those five seconds, I'm going to bank 45 degrees, pitch for best glide speed, not crane my neck looking for the airport and getting disoriented. I know it's back there. I'll wait just a few seconds to get this thing under control. 
I'm pointed back at the airport and you can see this takes a degree of like a little bit of straight flying before you turn back another 45 degrees. And this is why we needed to do the 360 degree test flight instead of 180 or 270. At this point I went full flaps because I was, I found that I was high. All the conservative factors built into this got me too high and I, I made it back with full flaps, which I'd rather be too high and I'd rather add flaps or slip or do what I have to to get down than to try to pull back and stretch my glide. And in this case, made it back to the runway. I know a lot of people are talking about propeller stopping and windmilling, and that's a, a topic that we just don't have time to get into all that, but it does come into play. And we'll address that another time or maybe on my blog. Um, so straighter turn back, you've got to consider all the hazards you need to prepare ahead of time and you need to make this decision before takeoff. What are the conditions involved? Uh, this is what you want to do when possible is to plan ahead. Can you turn slightly left or right and land? If there's any other option, you want to take it. But if landing off airport would be extremely hazardous, prepare for the possibility of making a turn back. And if wind is not a factor, which way do you turn? Well, most pilots are more comfortable making the turn to the left, but make this decision before takeoff. There are also other considerations. Like if you take off at an airport with a parallel runway, that's an option, much less turning uh, involved in turning back to another runway or in an angled runway or a taxiway or the flat area between the runways. Um, there are all kinds of things that you can consider. And if you don't plan ahead, you're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna delay too long in your reaction. If you do plan ahead, those five seconds are all gravy because you're sitting there thinking, my engine's gonna fail. As soon as it fails, I'm gonna do this. If I hit this altitude, I'm gonna do that. And you've got it all in your head, planned out ahead of time. But without preparation and training, you're gonna make unwise decisions. You're gonna to delay too long, you'll turn when you shouldn't turn, or you'll perform the maneuver incorrectly. So planning ahead is, is critical. So reviewing, if you're gonna make a turn back, you're gonna take off. You're gonna cross the departure end of the runway with two thirds of your observed altitude loss. You've met your turn back altitude. Now if the engine fails, you can do the turn back. Again, if there's anywhere to go in front of you, don't do this. Don't crane your neck. Reappraise the whole thing at the 90 degree point. Can I make it? If I can't, well, start looking for a place you can because this might be different but never attempt to stretch your glide if you're too low. This is how bad things happen. Find a place that's within your reach and your windscreen and put it there. Um, another note regarding the wind, if you're departing and you can do it, just drift with the wind. Because if you're at one of these airports with a hazardous field after takeoff, if you drift with the wind, you don't have as far to turn into the wind. You've got some of your, it's, it's almost like a teardrop pattern after takeoff, but you've got much less ground track to cover and less turning to be made to get back to the runway. So I recommend drifting with it if you can in this scenario of like an un uncontrolled airport or, or, or uh, an airport where you can do what you want. If you don't have any wind, there has been some writing about doing a teardrop reversal. If you're flying out of one of these airports that is hazardous to go straight, consider making a teardrop. Uh, an article written uh, about a year ago by John Carroll. It was published in AOPA. It was great advice to make this teardrop. In, in other words, you're at an airport that's got a dangerous terrain around it and going straight isn't a possibility. 
request from the tower if there's a tower. If there's not a tower, then just do it. Turn right 20 degrees, 30 degrees, and if you don't lose your engine, keep going. If you lose your engine, you're already in a better position to make that turn back. Um, when you do this and you're coming back and, and you've made the landing, don't try to grease it on. The airplane's already broken. Don't try to save it some more by making a greaser. Don't try to impress anybody. Get it on the ground. Uh, maximum braking if required. You may land long. Uh, raise the flaps if you have to. If you're flying a tail dragger, maybe uh, ground loop it. Do what you have to do to get it stopped on the flat surface. And remember, the general rule is to go straight ahead. Uh, a turn back should only be performed when it would be more hazardous not to. Know your airplane, your characteristics, your performance. Uh, practice power-off approaches regularly. I, I hate to see a pilot not familiar with the gliding characteristics of his airplane. He doesn't know where it can glide. So if you're out doing pattern work for currency, I recommend doing some power-off approaches. Pull the power to idle at downwind and dirty up as needed and see how your airplane glides so you can become familiar with it. So wrapping up, I, um, I just would like to add a couple thoughts. It's important to understand that the procedures we've been discussing here are not cast in stone, and I have no doubt they can be improved upon. We're in the infancy of determining how we're going to train this as an industry. And this is why I sincerely hope that the FAA will put together an ad hoc committee of industry experts, some of our best flight instructors out there, to improve on these recommendations. I'd also like to add a word of caution. If you're not comfortable practicing or performing the turn back maneuver, then by all means, you shouldn't do it. If you consider it an impossible turn, then it might be to you. I strongly recommend that you never attempt this kind of low altitude maneuvering during an actual engine out emergency unless you've practiced the maneuver and have gotten good at it and that you can perform it with consistency proficiency, and confidence. Finally, it's important to understand that I'm not recommending that anyone turn back following an engine failure that occurs shortly after takeoff. What I'm saying is that turning back is an option to use when it would be more hazardous not to. Thanks for watching tonight. And if you have any comments and you questions and you want to start a conversation, please go to my blog. Uh, on my website. I've got uh, a blog that I've started with this topic and, and, and let's just let's hash it out. So feel free to comment. Well, Brian, thank you. I can imagine that you will get uh, quite a bit of uh, traffic on your blog site following this. It's, uh, it was a controversial topic, but one that is uh, very, very well presented tonight. We've had a number of questions uh, during the during the presentation. I've uh, captured a few notes. Uh, one person mentioned um, uh, their rule of thumb for takeoffs, uh, achieving 70% of the rotation speed uh, by 50% of the of the runway or the 50% of the, the anticipated takeoff length. That's a pretty good rule of thumb, regardless if you're preparing for a possible turn back or just taking making a regular takeoff, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely, and I agree with that. I think that falls under the category of knowing your aircraft, knowing where it normally achieves this speed. And if you don't see this happen normally, that's the time to reject. Exactly. So have in mind uh, potentially not completing the takeoff rather than our mindset, which is normally to we're in the airplane, we're going to go fast and we're going to take off. 
Oh, exactly. When we go flying, we're going somewhere. We're going to get a, our, our $400 burger. We're going to meet some people. We're trying to get somewhere. Our mind is set on the destination. When we're in the critical phase of flight, of takeoff, we, we need to be set, okay, looking for a reason not to go. If you find one, don't go. Exactly, exactly. So <clears throat> you already responded to one of the questions about uh, how critical it is to get to uh, best glide speed when you're doing this turn back. Uh, some would say that rather than best glide speed, they would uh, prefer to do it at VY, a safer margin above the stall speed. And if they did that, uh, what would we expect in, uh, in descent rate? Well, you're going to get a higher descent rate and you're going to eat up valuable altitude. And I don't have a problem with that. If you practice it at altitude, if that's what your comfort level is, then practice it at altitude and see how much altitude is lost doing the maneuver at VY. As long as you do that, you're going to have the same decision-making process. It's going to be a little higher to account for that altitude lost at the higher speed. Exactly. Your altitudes would vary then if you chose to make that change. I see that. Sure. Okay. And then... Um, the two-thirds rule over the end of the runway, two-thirds of the turn back uh, height that you mentioned, uh, that includes the 50% buffer that you mentioned about when establishing the turn back height. Is that correct? No, it does not. That would be more conservative, but I found that's too conservative. The two-thirds is two-thirds of the altitude lost during the 360-degree gliding turn uh, that I refer to as the observed altitude loss. It's before we add the 50%. Otherwise, you'd be eliminating too many runways. Very good. Well, I think that probably clears it up for the viewer that had that question. And then this was an intriguing question. Let's say this happens to you, and not that I wish it happens to you, but if it should happen to you, uh, what would you do about um, other traffic that may be departing from that uh, busy airport from which you just took off uh, following your engine or after your engine emergency? Don't hit them. Don't hit them. That's a good <laughs> idea. Yeah. You're going to have to do the same thing no matter what. If you have the wherewithal to get your push, or to, push to talk and get on the radio and tell everybody what you're doing, uh, then by all means do so. I, have, I would not plan on talking. I would not plan on uh, giving way to traffic. You're not going to be able to give way. You've got to fly this maneuver. You've got to fly it precisely and get back to the runway. Odds are where you're going to be, there won't be other airplanes until you get to the runway. But there might be. When you get to the runway, if someone's on a takeoff roll, you might have to scoot over and, and land on the grass. Don't be so set in your way that you're not going to be able to do that. Pull over, land in the grass, land on the taxiway, but you're going to have to avoid traffic. You have the right-of-way because you're a glider now, right, over all other aircraft. Yeah, even though no one else may know it at the time. but uh, They may not know it, and there's risk involved. Yeah. If you could blurt out the word emergency returning to land on – on the runway that might get someone a, a heads up. But again, trying to remember all these things and fly the airplane successfully, that's would be quite the challenge. Yeah, the I, think, on the I, is the I think completing it successfully depends upon keeping it simple. The more you complicate, the more you throw in there things that you need to do. And talking is one of the last things you need to do. Uh, if you have the wherewithal to do it, great. Uh, if you don't have time, don't. It's the last thing in the aviate navigate, investigate, communicate. Communicate's last, so aviate, fly the airplane, try to avoid anybody else out there. Uh, but talking should be last. I, like we've all heard, don't, don't crash the microphone to fly the airplane, or is it the other <laughs> way around? <laughs> <laughs> I think we got that. Okay, well, great, great. Well, Brian, um, thank you for your comments uh, this evening and uh, your presentation on, on the possible turn. 
uh, let me make sure I got this right from some cryptic notes that I took while you were speaking. Your general rule is, in a face with an emergency like this, where you engine experience an engine loss shortly after takeoff on the climb, your general rule is to land straight ahead, Absolutely. unless unless it's more hazardous to do that. And that in that case, then you would consider the the possible turn or the turn back maneuver or the impossible turn is somewhere to, where to call it. Absolutely, but it needs to be planned ahead. If, if you exactly. deem this takeoff to be one such that continuing straight ahead in the event of an engine failure would be more hazardous than coming back, then we need to have planned it, practiced it, become proficient at it, and able to do it consistently, not just once or twice, but to do it consistently uh, and be comfortable with it. Otherwise, and, don't. Yeah, very good. And so uh, the rest of my notes tonight was um, practice this at altitude uh, and know what my numbers are, and then plan for it before each takeoff anticipating that this could happen to me on this very next takeoff. And if it does, know my altitude I need to be at at the end of the runway, know my altitude that I need to be at before I begin the takeoff maneuver, climb at somewhere between VX and VY, and then, uh, let's see, turn into the wind. I should have this planned out, of course. Bank angle, about 45 degrees, coordinated turn. Uh, look for best glide speed, unless you're more comfortable with VY or something like that. Expect an intermittent stall warning horn, and if I'm in a uh, constant speed prop, pull the prop back to low RPM and anticipate full 360 degrees of turning to come back and land on the runway that from which I just took off. Does that pretty well summarize it? Yeah, I think you hit mo most of the bullet points there, and, and, and I agree with that. Don't forget, if you have a really strong headwind, don't try this. A strong headwind will really mess you up, and you're better off taking advantage of the slow ground speed with a crash landing straight ahead. Another very important point, so yep. as slow as possible because landing is assured. Indeed. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, well, Brian, uh, thank you again so much for uh, sharing your time with us tonight.